Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Well, welcome. My name is Brandon, by the way. If anyone, this is your, you know, first, second time checking us out. So I say, I'm glad you're here. I'm the lead pastor out here at Alliance Church Hortonville. And, uh, uh, you know, I did something kind of fun this weekend. Uh, you know, these people that dress up uh, like maybe medieval characters and they, you know, role play the thing or, you know, the, some of them do it with the Civil War. They dress up and they reenact certain battles and something. Like. I did something kind of like that, uh, except with plumbing. I mean, it's like, it was, <laughs> let me tell you how it started. Um, do you ever, do you ever like see a hair in the drain and you, and you pull on it and realize it's, it's connected to like three other hairs and you pull, keep pulling and then you realize that those are connected to a swampy mass that looks exactly like a muskrat that's been de- decomposing for like it's the same size and shape and smell of a decomposing muskrat. I, I just had, I had one of those situations this weekend. And so I ended up taking a part and cleaning the shower, the drain and all that stuff, which of course led to me taking apart the sink drain and cleaning it because it was a little slow and which of course led to about three or four trips to Home Depot. Um, and uh, just, when I, uh, just when I thought I was about done, our garbage disposal did this cool little trick. Uh, I don't know if you guys does this or not. I don't know how else to explain it, but it's just kind of like, like vomits all over the kitchen. You guys ever have this happen? Ours did that. It's neat. So I, I put my plumber costume back on and uh, a few more trips back to Home Depot and here's more of my money. And uh, went back to pretending to be a plumber. Uh, and it, why am I talking about this? Here's the deal. Something about plumbing is that if you want to fix it the right way, you got to get messy. When it comes to plumbing, if you want to fix it the right way, you have to get messy. Like standing above it, pouring drains or pouring Drano or whatever down the thing, that'll only get you so far. Eventually, if you want to do the job the right way, you got to roll up your sleeves, you got to get down on the floor, you got to get in some uncomfortable positions. And you've got to get messy. You'll probably stink when you're done. And, my, and here's my point is when, uh, when we celebrate Christmas, what we're actually celebrating is God rolling up his sleeves and getting messy, entering the mess and doing, doing the job the correct way. If, if, if the pipework of human existence is clogged, let's say, and it's, and it's full of uh, you know, foul rottenness, things like greed and selfishness and injustice and malice and deceit and racism and adultery and uh, various forms of uh, ways to just dishonor God and hurt other people, what happens is that our three key relationships end up damaged. They don't work right. Our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, and even our relationship with ourselves. And, and, and what happens, it's, it's like the, the, the sin clogging the whole thing up. It's like the things of God's life, things like joy, peace, love, it, they don't flow freely 
to and from uh, uh, into us and through us and back to him and all that stuff. It doesn't flow freely in all the directions it should. And it's a mess. And, and what the Bible teaches, what this book teaches, is that God didn't sit up there saying, well, you guys got yourselves into this mess. Get yourself out of it. No, specifically, when we look at Jesus, we see that God didn't settle for any cheap, easy, temporary, quick fix type solutions. Like God didn't pour Drano down the sink and say, well, I hope that helps, and then walk away. No, he got involved personally. And, and, and John captures this concept brilliantly in one dynamic little sentence. I love this sentence. Uh, if you were to ask me, why is Christmas such a big deal? Sum that up in one sentence. I'd, I'd, I'd say this sentence right here. Are you ready for it? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. One little sentence, three parts, immeasurable theological significance. And so I want us to dive into this sentence and talk about Get a, get a feel for why this is such a big deal. And to help grasp the significance of this sentence, I'm going to read some of the surrounding verses so we get the context. I'm going to read and then we're going to pray. And my simple goal here is that every one of us would leave with a bigger vision of Jesus than we, than we currently have. I just want all of us to leave here with a bigger vision of who Jesus is. And so... Here it is, I'm going to start at John 1, starting at verse 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. So would you pray with me about this now, church? Lord Jesus, if what your dear friend John wrote about you is true... There is nothing more significant in this universe than your life and what is meant by it. What you did, who you are, what you did, and what that means for us. Jesus, I, I don't know where every single person in this room is at and how much they appreciate you. My simple request right now, Lord, is that wherever we are all at, would you expand our vision of you? Would you help us to know more deeply who you really are and what that means for us? I pray this in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name. Amen. 
All right, so first of all, let's start with the context of what, what, who's John? John wrote this. Who's John and why should any of us care what he has to say? Here's the deal. You know, John was the closest friend that Jesus had while he was on earth. Do you know that? You think about that. While Jesus was walking through his ministry, John was right there with him. He, John was Jesus' closest earthly friend. And so when he says, here's what you need to know about Jesus, boy, we should, um, we should not take that with a grain of salt. We, we should take it very seriously because the one who is closest to him is the one who is therefore most qualified to tell us what he's really like. I think about it this way. If, um, let's say, I got hit by a bus and years later uh, someone wanted to know what I was like but they couldn't be with me bodily anymore. They couldn't be with me physically and hear my, my voice and my mannerisms and get to know what I'm all about. Who would be the, what would be the best way for them to get to know me? Well, it'd be by listening to my wife, Melanie. Let me, you know, and she would say, this guy almost never gets his socks all the way into the hamper. It drives me nuts. That's who Brandon was. But, but because she knew me so well, no one on earth would be better qualified to tell someone else what I am like. And that's how it is with John and Jesus. John says, this is what you need. John, he was with Jesus, saw everything right there. Jesus trusted John so much that while he was hanging on the cross, he said, John, you're the one who I want to take care of my mother. Can you imagine how much Jesus trusted John? And so then in his old age, John writes this book, the Gospel of John, because he wants you to get to know Jesus the way he knows Jesus. Who he is, what he did, why should any of us care? So let's dive into this, and I'll tell you that the entire Gospel of John could be packaged up in this one sentence, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's Take each of those parts one at a time. The first part, who is the word? Well, I think you'll see that the word here is God's ultimate self-expression. And the word uh, here, uh, you know, in the beginning was the word. That word, word, is the Greek word logos. And... Uh, you might go, what on earth does that word mean? What did it stand for in the time? Well, in the Greek, that was used widely and in a ton of different contexts to express many different concepts. The Stoics attached a certain meaning to the word. The Gnostics attached yet another meaning to the word. The various philosophers all had their own different take on the word logos and how to use it. And in general, it meant someone's inner thought or their reason or their speech or their message. It meant a lot of different things. But, the, but if we want to know what does John mean by the word logos, by the word word, it's best to just look at how John uses it. What does John say about the word? Look at verse one. Let's, what are some things we can draw out of here? Well, first thing he says, right out of the gates, he says, in the beginning. Does that sound familiar? It reminds you of Genesis 1.1, doesn't it? In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the was there doesn't mean used to be means always has been. 
This speaks to the pre-existence of the word in the beginning, like meaning that that beginning there is the, sort of the beginning of all beginnings, the origin of all things. A way you could understand that was be, would be to say before time began was the word. And now wrap your noodle around this. And the word was with God and the word was God. How does that make any sense? He, so, okay, we got this. Okay, the word was God. Got it, check. He's talking about God. God is the word, the word is God. But the word was also with God. So he's somehow God, yet somehow distinguishable from God. And he's with him, meaning he has a personal relationship with God. So I don't totally get what he's saying here, but let's keep reading. What else do we learn about the word? Verse three. Now, not just did he pre-exist all creation. Check this out. All things were made through him. And without him, was nothing made. Everything was made through him. So not only did he pre-exist creation, he is the agent of divine creation. Everything was made through this word, whoever it is who he's talking about here. Now let's keep going to verse four. What else do we learn about the word? In him, so now we learn that the word is a him, not a, not a what. In him was life. You know, when God made Adam, he had to breathe life into his nostrils. He had to, non-life, mud cannot become life. God has to do something to bring non-life into life. But in, in the word, there's just life. He possesses life. And the life was the light of men, humanity. Now, you remember God saying, let there be lights. One of the first things he started off with, right? In the beginning, and the light shines in the darkness. And what is darkness? The darkness is the absence of light. What is light? Well, it's the life of men and that light. Remember, John writes, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And what he means is that God is perfect. He's holy. Truth, grace, holiness, righteousness, perfection. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness, and, and look at that, it's present tense. The light didn't shine into the darkness. It is shining continue, to this day. As of that writing, AD 90 or whatever, uh, the light was still shining. And the darkness has not overcome it. Like the darkness hasn't been able to extinguish that light. Darkness can't beat that light. And so think about the word if the best way to get to know of someone is to speak with them and to hear them, to listen to them, to listen to their words, the best way to know God ultimately is through whoever this word is. The word is God's ultimate self-expression. That's who he is. Now, what did he do? Second thing I want you to see is that the word, God's ultimate self-expression, became flesh. That means became human. So just pause and process this, what John's writing. This word, the word, 
This one who pre-existed all creation and was the agent of divine creation and was the possessor and giver of life and the one that, who, that life was light and he was holy and he was true and he was good, uh, became human. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. Right? Because in Christ, God became one of us. This is why Christmas is a big deal. No other religion, no other notion of God, no other version of some whatever false God, no other religious claim to any sort of truth touts that the God of all the universe became human. And specifically in this way, he became one of us and he, he didn't stop being himself. Think about that. God wasn't, or Jesus wasn't half God, half, half man. Um, he wasn't God only and pretending to be a man and giving off the appearance of being a human. He wasn't, he didn't stop being God and start being a human. You know, this, the word became flesh means that, not that God ceased, uh, that the word ceased to be God, but that the word took on humanity. He added humanity to his divinity no more than I stopped being a husband the day I became a father um, the, the, in the first how many ever centuries of church history there's tons of debate on how to understand this and there's all sorts of unbiblical nonsense floating around you had uh in the third century a guy named Arius who uh who was trying to teach everyone that Christ wasn't actually God and then later on you had um you know these guys like Eutychus and Nestorius who were who were teaching that that no Christ was God but he wasn't actually man and so on one side, they would drop the divinity. They would compromise the divinity of Christ. And on the other, they would compromise the humanity of Christ. So they called the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. For all you history buffs, you might remember this. And they crafted in their statement the sentence that our Lord Christ, in Latin, vera deus, vera homo, meaning truly God, truly man. See, the word became flesh. He became completely human. But he did not cease to be the word. He bore all the marks of our frailty. The God of the universe became a human, fragile in every way we are, yet he didn't sin. He was even able to die, which he was glad to do for the redemption of God's children. Praise God. So, who is he? The Word. He's God expressing him, showing himself to us. What did he do? He became a human. And why should any of us care? The third part of the sentence answers that. It gives the significance of all of this. Third thing I want you to see is that the word became flesh, and why should we care? Because he dwelt among us. And now you might go, big deal. He hung out for a while. Who cares? 
No, no, no. You got to understand the word dwelt. What this means is that the word, when he became flesh, he brought heaven into earth. And why do I say that? I don't make just a ridiculous claim or an outlandish claim like that without substantiating it here. The word there for dwelt means tabernacled. Literally pitched, pitched his tent. But not like he came and camped out with us. He wasn't just, you know, roasting s'mores or whatever. He, he, he pitched his tabernacle. And do you, do you, who cares, what is a tabernacle? And what, 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 do you remember when God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt? And he was setting them free. And what did he command them to build? You ever read the book of Exodus? Right? He instructed them to build a tabernacle. And, uh, you know, look at here, verse 20, uh, chapter 25 of Exodus says, let them, he's telling Moses, tell them to make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And what we learn then is that when, they, when you read about them building the tabernacle, aren't you overwhelmed? Have you ever done a Bible through a year program or whatever and you're reading through Exodus and you're like, my goodness, with all the details. This is the part of the Bible in a year thing where you start falling asleep and you go, I can't keep up with this because it's so detailed. When God's instructing them to build the tabernacle, it's like every single thing is like, you're going to make this out of this thread and this out of this wood and plate it with this type of metal and this type of gold. And it's going to be this long and this high and that deep and so on. And this is how it's going to work. And this layer and that layer and the other. And then on this, you're going to embroider this and that angel and so on and so forth and over and over and over again. And you know, it's such a big deal that you read it all three times. You're going, did, did I just read this? Why? Because God in insane, meticulous detail tells Mo Moses, this is how I want them to make it. And then Moses tells the people, this is how God wants y'all to make it. And then the people make it and it says, and this is how they made it. And so you read it all three times. And the with, with the tabernacle, with all its detail, what you realize is that it symbolizes heaven. Every single detail was intentional. It was on purpose. It represented something. It was designed to teach, to preach, to show. It was like a mini heaven on earth. And let me ask you something. What's the main attraction when we get to heaven? It's God. God himself is the main attraction of heaven. And that was exactly the case with the tabernacle. The visible presence of God with his people. Chapter 40 of Exodus, they get done building this tabernacle and it's, and it's all built and it's ready and then it ends in this, this massive, massive manifestation of the glory of the Lord that would have overwhelmed any of us if we saw it with our own eyeballs, says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and listen to this, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory is the radiance of God's significance. 
the, you visibly see God's perfection. If God's the light bulb and light is coming out of it, the light is the glory. It's his radiance. And it would have filled all of us with awe. And Moses wasn't even able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See what's happening there is heaven is invading earth. Overlapping, a picture of Venn diagram of heaven colliding with earth. And there's this space in the middle where earth and heaven are the way it's supposed to be. The way it was before sin entered the scene. And, okay, so now think of this. Now John then says, the word became human and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son, one sent from the Father. See, the word becoming flesh and tabernacling among us creates heaven on earth. The Venn diagram begins to collide and overlap. And one day it's going to overlap perfectly. This will all culminate in heaven. You know, look at Revelation. I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now pause, when you imagine heaven, what do you think of? Like gold streets and like, you know, perfect fishing uh, conditions. I, I don't know, what, when you think of heaven, what are you excited about? A lot of good stuff, pain-free, all this. But here's what it's all about. The dwelling place of God is with man. Just the same reason he told him to build a tabernacle, right? Just the same reason Jesus came, dwelt among us. The dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And there's a lot of good stuff that goes along with that. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Praise God. But you notice the main attraction of heaven is God himself. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. There wasn't a temple. They didn't need, you know what the te temple was? The temple was the tabernacle after they got rich enough to buy bricks. The same thing, just on a foundation instead of mobile, right? But in heaven, there's no temple. There's no tabernacle. Why? For its temple, its tabernacle is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth here, you see? He says, in the city had no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. And you see Jesus, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, the light shining in the darkness, and that, light, that life is, is light, and the darkness not overcoming it, and so on. You see what John's doing here? Do you see how he's saying, Jesus brought heaven to earth? And it's just the start. Anyone who believes in him gets put on a trajectory, a heavenward traje trajectory that you can take to the bank. It's assured. So what, what does all this mean for us today here? Uh, this John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. What does it mean for us? What it ultimately, 
what it ultimately means is this right here. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. I, I, as I was writing this sermon this week, I really struggled to find some sort of tangible action step. You know, I always want, I'm always looking for one piece of application that I can sort of challenge you with and everyone can embrace and something you can go do. And, I, and I, you know what? I just couldn't find one. Because the point of this verse is not that there is something to do, but that there is someone to know. You want to know God, you got to know Jesus. That light is shining, present tense, and the darkness has not overcome it. No other spiritual path will get you to God. No other form of spirituality. I don't care how much value it adds to your life in the here and now. No other form of spirituality will get you to God. If you want to know God, you've got to know Jesus. You remember what verse 18 said when I read it? Let's put it up again. Does you go back to this idea of the, the word was with God and the word was God? No one has ever seen God. Just makes a blanket statement. No one has ever seen God in his full glory. But the only God who is at the Father's side. So is he God or is he, or is he at the Father's side? Yes, is the answer. Is he, was he with God or was he God? Yes, is the answer. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him Known. You want to know God? It takes God to show you God. Later on, Jesus would say to Philip, Philip would say, Jesus, just show us, show us the Father. And that's enough. And Jesus says, Philip, don't, how long have you been with me? Have you been with me this long? And you don't know that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. See, the degree to which you know Jesus is the degree to which you know God. You cannot know God more than you know Jesus. Which means, I mean, at least if you believe what John wrote. If you can rip this book out and throw it away, then, you know, I don't know what to say. But you will never convince John otherwise. So if you want to know God, you've got to know Jesus. If you want to know God's will for your life, You've got to know Jesus. If you, want to, if you want to live a life that pleases God, you've got to get to know Jesus. If you want to experience God, you've got to know Jesus. You want to experience his hope and his peace and his joy and his love and all that good stuff, you've got to get to know Jesus. And the beauty of John 1.14 here is that it makes it incontestably clear that you do not have to climb up to God by living some perfect religious life, being a good person. No, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to us. Man, you know how much hope that gives? Like we can't straighten this mess out. We can't, we can't clean out our own plumbing. But he, he got personal. He entered our mess of a world and he lived the life that we never could. You know that Jesus kept God's moral law perfectly to a T. He had an impeccable record. 
And then not only did he live the life that we could never live, he died a death that we should have died. You know what? What happened to Jesus on the cross should have happened to us. Now, I don't mean that all of us need to go get some nails through our hands uh, this afternoon. That's not what I'm saying. You know, the nails weren't the bad part. The full wrath of the Father poured out onto the Lamb of God for the sins of humanity. That was the bad part. And that's what we deserve. But Jesus took it. And we sang earlier, O come, Emmanuel. You know what that word means? It means God with us. Oh, come, Emmanuel. Why? To ransom captive Israel. Do you hear what they're saying? Oh, come, God with us. That, that, that song is essentially singing, Oh, word, would you please become flesh and dwell among us? It's Israel from the perspective of exile crying out to the word to become flesh and dwell among us. And why? To set God's people free. I want to leave you with uh, John 1.12. I think this is a DL top 10, is it? Jessica, is this a DL top 12? Is this a DL top 12? We've got to memorize this, guys. All our kids can say this one right off the top of their heads, so we should too. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know what? children of God do, they experience freedom. You know what children of God do? They experience the ever-increasing restoration of their three key relationships, God, others, self. And the more we know Jesus, the more God unclogs the pipes of our lives, removing the rottenness, and allowing things like joy and love and peace and patience and kindness to flow freely from God to us, back to God, through us to other people, and even in our relationship with ourselves. So I don't know what your perspective on Jesus is currently, but wherever you're at, this Christmas season, would you dare ask God to give you a bigger vision of Jesus? And maybe you've never seriously considered Christ, and maybe now is the time. Maybe you've flirted with him for a while, but now it's time to get serious. Maybe um, you have considered Christ in the past, but you've written him off. Or maybe you've just simply drifted in your affections and in your devotion, uh, and, and God is, is calling you to come back to Christ. Or maybe you've known Christ for years, praise God, and God would invite you again this Christmas season to know him deeper still. So this Christmas season, would we all pray together, God, would you give me a bigger vision of Jesus? Let's pray. Um, Lord, I don't think that this side of eternity we, we will ever come close to fully appreciating 
the profound and life-altering, eternity-altering reality of what it means that you, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, So my simple prayer is this, Lord. Would you expand our vision of Jesus? Would you give us a more intense desire to know him? Would you give us a more intense desire to be like him? Oh Lord, would you be so glorified as we fall more in love with you? Would you work all the more powerfully in and through us to your glory and for the sake of a world who needs you? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you, my church. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.